The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. Today, we've got a really great show today. We're going to be talking about lessons learned about the doctor-patient relationship, and let's not forget them. Those of you who listen to the show regularly know that our focus is trying to discuss the virtues of free market healthcare and preserving the traditional doctor-patient relationship. And I'm always trying to warn you about the dangers of socialized medicine and a one-size-fits-all government-controlled healthcare system. And as we go through this exercise where I try to explain the virtues of free market healthcare and the doctor-patient relationship, I'm really learning myself as well. I've been in medicine now coming up on 30 years, and I've obviously been thinking about the issues surrounding healthcare for a very long time, and I, I hope that I'm able to share some of that experience with you to help you understand why it is so important that we maintain our free market healthcare and it's more. It's relevant more than ever. We see California is uh, on the precipice of literally outlawing free market medicine and implementing a socialized medicine system. That's going to be a complete disaster. But when I talk about the doctor-patient relationship and free market medicine versus socialized medicine, I really always thought about it in terms of quality. We know that in a free market system, you have the highest number of choices, the best quality at the lowest price, that the patient is in complete control of their healthcare decisions, and that in socialized medicine, where you have a one-size-fits-all government-run bureaucratic system, the costs inevitably increase monumentally, the uh, choices that you have in your healthcare decision-making become extremely limited as inflation is always attempting to try and maintain and control these costs. And as a result, we end up getting very poor health care, as we've seen over and over again in systems like uh, the Canadian system, where uh, you know 60,000 people a year are fleeing the country, seeking out free market health care options around the world. We see the wait times in, in Great Britain. And we see in this country in our own VA system just how horrible socialized medicine is or government-run healthcare is. But as I started investigating into this more and more, I started to realize that it's not just about preserving quality, but it's the morality of healthcare. I came across an excellent essay uh, written by Ashley Fernandez, and it was... Uh, published in December 10th, 2020. It was an essay on, <clears throat> excuse me, why so many doctors became Nazis. In the answer and its consequences, a bioethicist finds moral lessons for today's professional healer. I found this article to be incredibly enlightening, and I was just going to kind of touch on it, but I think next week I want to do a show really getting into this this essay and really kind of understand just how important free market medicine is at preserving morality in our healthcare system. Now, one of the things that's really important is uh, my father taught me this a long time ago is the only person who really cares about you is you. Now, obviously, that's a little bit hyperbolic. People have different levels of care, but certainly the person who cares most about you is you. Uh, because you know yourself the best. No other person, even your mother and father, nobody who knows you really understands the inner workings of your mind, what your true wants, needs, and desires are. And it's different for all of this, all of us. We know that that's one of the reasons that a free market system works so well is in a, in a 
marketplace, in an economy, there are so many wants, needs, and desires from each individual that no person or groups of persons could possibly address all of those things. And that's why whenever you have a centralized government controlling the economy or healthcare or whatever, you always have very limited choices and not really much room to operate because no group of people could possibly have the necessary expertise to manage these things. Whereas in a free market, you have, uh, you know, infinite number of people addressing infinite number of wants, needs and desires in individuals. And that's why a free market is always able to provide exactly what the people want, what the marketplace wants. Uh, at, at the lowest possible uh, cost. And medicine is no different than that. And as I started reading this essay on why so many doctors became Nazis, I started to realize that there were a lot of parallels with things going on today that uh, at least warrant our our attention. We should at least study our history. You know, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. And medicine is no different than that. And I'm starting to see a lot of things that uh, make me wonder about how close we really are to sliding back into uh, something, you know, maybe not the Holocaust. That's always very hyperbolic and people roll their eyes. I know when we listen to it, but we should be very concerned about how medicine and morality work together because science is not always moral. Um, the uh, the great physicist uh, Albert Einstein uh, talked about science and 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 the concept that we should not make science our god. And he says, and certainly we should take care not to make the intellect our god. It has, of course, powerful muscles, but no personality. It cannot lead, it can only serve, and it is not fastidious in its choice of a leader. This characteristic is reflected in the qualities of its priests and intellectuals. The intellectual has a sharp eye for methods and tools, but is blind to ends and values. So it is no wonder that this fatal blindness is handed from old to young and today involves a whole generation. It's those are our prescient words for today. Letting science be our god. It's it's not it's not in our own best interest. Now, when I try to talk about the distinction between free market medicine and socialized medicine, I'm always trying to talk about the concept that the do, in the doctor-patient relationship, a doctor's fidelity should always be to the patient and only to the patient. When we have these these um, we create these uh, I don't I want to say inappropriate relationships or we've altered the relationship between doctor and patient where doctors are now employed by hospitals to a large degree 53 percent of doctors now last I checked are employed by hospital systems which means their fidelity is to their employer hospital systems are largely controlled by Medicare and Medicaid, meaning the hospital systems get a, a lot of their money from Medicare and Medicaid, which are government-run systems, and therefore, in order for them to receive the Medicare and Medicaid benefits that they need, they have to follow the rules of a government, of the government. And so, as a result, our hospital systems are quasi-government agencies, and that's why more and more they're running like a bureaucracy. And I'm going to get into some of this stuff to try and illustrate this. But the point is, we, you know, we talked about how nowadays when doctors are employed by a hospital, they're measured. They need to be measured by the hospital. One of the things that they'll use in hospital systems is they, they do not want patients to be readmitted to the hospital within 30 days of a discharge. And so a doctor knows that if they discharge their patient and that patient is readmitted to the hospital within 30 days, that's going to be a negative reflection on that doctor and could affect their reimbursement. And so you create this perverse relationship between the doctor and the patient where the doctor's concern is that, you know, not necessarily for the well-being of that patient, but they don't want that patient coming back to the hospital 
uh, within 30 days and getting readmitted because it'll be a negative reflection on that doctor. Now, we, you know, as doctors, we all know there are many reasons why patients would get readmitted to the hospital within 30 days that have nothing to do with the quality of the doctor's decisions or or anything that the patient did. Sometimes things just happen. But as a result of this arbitrary rule set by a government bureaucracy, you create situations where, on the one hand, a doctor is going to be very hesitant to discharge a patient that might be ready for discharge because they don't want to take the risk that that patient may come up for in 30 days. And what happens is you artificially drive up the cost of managing that patient because it's expensive to keep a patient admitted to the hospital. Then once you do release that patient, you set up a circumstance where that patient may come back to that doctor's office and be exhibiting signs that that scientifically the doctor's saying, man, I really think this patient be in the hospital. But the patient, the doctor is thinking, if I readmit this patient, that's going to be a ding against me and it's going to affect me negatively. And you create these perverse incentives. And so as a patient, you want a physician whose fidelity is to you. The decisions that they make are about you. The advice that they give, the counsel that they give has to do with fidelity to you and your problems. That's the way that we maintain the the appropriate doctor-patient relationship and we avoid these perverse incentives negatively impacting uh, patient care. Now, it's not only that the fidelity of the doctor is elsewhere in socialized medicine to their employer, it's also that doctors are fallible. We all make mistakes and that's one of the things that's so important Uh, to understand is as a patient, when you go and you see a doctor, sometimes you're going to get an answer that you don't like. And one of the things that's really important about medicine is that people understand is medicine is rarely about right and wrong. Medicine is about risk assessment. If you choose this course of action, you're going to accept a certain amount of risk and a different kind of risk. And if you're going to go in this direction, it'll be different. it's there's no choice that eliminates risk now some choices are easier than others we know in certain circumstances like if you have a broken hip if people don't get their hip fixed they do poorly and if you do get your hip fixed you usually do pretty well so in that sort of situation it's a pretty easy uh, decision to make but there are other decisions out there that are less obvious and have different levels of consequence and you need to be able to have the ability to go get different opinions from different doctors so that you can make judgments about how to manage your health care according to your own morals and values and your own judgments because at the end of the day nobody looks out for you as well as you i want to kind of give you some perspectives too about how how we we trust people we're all sort of in this environment where we want people to handle things for us uh you know when it's our parents we want our parents to handle things we don't want to deal with i know with my wife she takes care of all the bills and things like that i don't have to handle it and so i like ceding that authority to her but usually those people that we cede that type of authority are trusted because we kind of get in the habit of that, we tend to cede authority to people that we believe are trusted, but really don't necessarily have our own best interests at heart. And let me give you some examples. When I first got out of um, medical school residency and did my fellowship, I started my own practice. I was really, my whole goal was one day I wanted to set up my own medical practice and I wanted to be in charge. I wanted to be the one making the decisions. And I wanted to build the greatest uh, orthopedic center the world has ever known. And I believed all the propaganda when I was in med school and everything, you know, this concept of rich doctor. And I, I didn't really know what rich meant. I just felt I would have enough money to to pay for things. And I never really gave it a thought. So having no business experience whatsoever, uh, we went out, we started our own practice, which was essentially a business, and we hired somebody to run the practice. And this person was somebody that we believed to be educated, experienced, and that we believed would act in our best interest, my partners and I. 
And what we learned the hard way was that person didn't take our consideration our, or our well-being into consideration at all. He took his own consideration, uh, and that's all he looked at was was how things affected him. And as a result, our first practice went bankrupt. We went out of business. And it was worse than that because it wasn't just the person that we hired to <clears> – <throat> to manage our practice that let us down, but it was the people that we thought were watching that person. So when we started our first medical practice, you know, we had, I, I remember we had one patient and us three doctors, we all went, went in to take care of this patient all at the same time. And it makes me laugh to think about it, but you know, we just spent, for me, I just spent 13 years training to become a doctor. I was very highly trained. I was ready to go. We had this first patient came in. We all three go to see this patient. And as a, as time passed, our practice grew, and I felt like uh, we did a really good job of building the type of practice that we wanted, meaning we were very uh, patient-centric. We were uh, – our customer service was was exemplary. And uh, we, we built a large practice, and as the months and years went by, our patient volume grew and grew and grew, but our revenue did not. And as a result, it became very frustrating. And over time, we started to learn that uh, the insurance companies play a lot of tricky games to avoid being able to pay their claims. I've shared this story about how my partners and I went to a coding class that was run by former employees of insurance companies. And they let us know that insurance companies will rate every medical practice an A practice, a B practice, or a C practice, where A practices are recognized as being very good at collections, B practices are average at collections, and C practices are poor at collections. And they told us that the insurance companies, when they label a practice a C practice, will deny all their claims, knowing that they'll be very poor at figuring out the paperwork and being able to go and, and recover that money. And as a result, they get out of paying these doctors. B practices, they deny uh, let, uh, less often than the C practices. And then A practices, who are good at, at chasing their money, they deny their claims uh, the least. And then one of the funny things that uh, when I look back on it now, it enrages me, but when insurance companies feel they're paying out too much money in the course of a month, they come out onto the floor and they tell their staff, just stop processing claims. Now, this was coming to us from a course that was being taught by former employees that work in insurance companies to sort of train doctors how to be better at collecting their money. And I remember thinking to myself this time, this is utter corruption, which it is. But that's a show for another time. The important point here is that the person that we hired to run our practice was not doing it. You might ask yourself, well, why wasn't wasn't that person doing it? Well, people all have different motives in life. Uh, in his case, I think a lot of it just had to do with sheer laziness. It wasn't that he wanted to hurt us. He just didn't want to do the work necessary to make us an A practice at collecting our money. Now, at the time, I was I remember having a conversation with one of my partners, and we were just having this discussion about, man, we should have gone into business and become business people because we noticed that the person running our practice came in late, you know, 9, 10 o'clock, went to Starbucks, got coffee, and then left about 1, 2 o'clock, and it felt like he wasn't doing anything. And the laughable part was we were so naive, we, we didn't realize at the time he really wasn't doing anything, and that... Business people are not successful when they don't work. In fact, nobody is successful if you don't put in the work. We just didn't recognize it at that time. Now, we had hired an accounting firm uh, that was considered to be one of the greatest accounting firms for business, especially medical practices, in the area. And we spent top dollar for it because we were under, under the misguided belief that the most expensive people do the best work. And... As the years went by, our practice expanded and tripled and quadrupled and quintupled, and we're seeing all these patients, but every month the revenue stayed the same. We never seemed to see an increase in revenue. And one day, and I was really trying to understand this. It was very difficult. It took a very long time 
to understand. I remember sitting with employees. Okay, when a patient makes a phone call, how do we schedule that? When, you know, how do we verify insurance? You know, how do we figure out who's on insurance? And gosh, I was probably practicing medicine for five years before I even understood there was a thing called a clearinghouse. You know, we don't send our claims directly to the insurance company. We send it to this place called a clearinghouse. They process the claims and then they send it to the insurance company. And that whole fiasco is a a story for another day. Suffice it to say, it's very complicated to run a medical practice. And there are many opportunities uh, to affect reimbursement. Now, you want to have a practice administrator who's running the practice like I have now, who's amazing at this. But at the time, the person I had was not very good. I believe that my accounting firm would be watching this person and holding them accountable because I was ceding authority to an accounting firm that had this reputation for being the top accounting firm for medical practices in the area. It was the most expensive. Gosh, they just had to be great at it. I mean, how could they not be? And I remember as I'm getting frustrated over the years, the revenue's not increasing, the volume is increasing massively, I'm trying to get to the bottom of this, and then one day, somebody walks in and repossesses our water cooler. And I think to myself, huh, that water cooler is $90 a month. How is it being repossessed? I mean, that really seems like like a complete abdication of any any semblance of accountability by the person running our practice. And so I picked up the phone and I called the accountant and I said, the water cooler just got repossessed. Is there is there something uh, you can explain to me about it? And the person says to me, would you mind meeting me with your partners at Starbucks and without the person you have running your practice? And I thought, okay, well, that's odd. So we go to the, we go to the, the Starbucks and we sit there and our accountant, proceeds to tell us that the person we've hired to run our practice is just simply not doing it. And for example, they have not funded your 401k. And I can remember at the time saying, what is funding a 401k? That's how inexperienced I was at business. I didn't understand that when you have employees and there's a 401k plan that as revenue comes in, you have to set money aside to fund that 401k for your employees. And that was not being managed at all by this person. And I thought my first statement to the accountant was, why in the world, if you knew this was going on for all this time, why didn't you tell us? And his response back to me was, well, we thought you guys were friends and we didn't know how to bring it up. And I can remember saying back to the accountant, the whole point of having an accountant to watch the person who's running the practice is so that you can hold them accountable. The lesson here is, People have different allegiances. People have different allegiances to different people. Their motives are different and their motives matter. And you cannot, you cannot arbitrarily seed all of your faith in, in others with the blind hope that they're going to have your best interest at heart. And that is true for everybody on this earth, whether it's a teacher, a boss, any person, um, and certainly a doctor. And a doctor-patient relationship is one of your most important relationships that you're ever going to have. And I can remember when I would sit at these business meetings in my in my early career, and they would be talking about things and, and uh, you know, business things, language and things like that. And I was embarrassed. I remember sitting there thinking like, gosh, I have no idea what they're talking about. And I didn't want to be... Uh, thought of as dumb or or uh, you know not knowledgeable or whatever and so I kept my mouth shut I've learned now that most people who start spouting these things don't know anything about what they're talking about and I'm very comfortable saying to people when I don't understand something I don't understand that explain it to me like I'm a four-year-old and if I do not understand something I simply won't get involved with it because it's if I can't understand it then there's a good chance that somebody's scamming me. And that's true of most of us out there. Most things in this world are not super complicated. They're very simple. And certainly important decisions in your life, especially when you have counselors or uh, people that you're that you count on to give you advice, including your doctor giving you advice about your your medical condition, you need to be able to understand it. And if you find a person who's unable to communicate 
important things to you, buying a house, a mortgage, borrowing money, education, or your health care, then you should seek out somebody else. Now, in a socialized system, once you get to that doctor who's made the decision, you're out. You're done. There is no, hey, I want another opinion. That's not how socialized medicine works because the decision-making comes from the top. And the one-size-fits-all, top-down, um, government-run healthcare system is not interested in any of your unique issues that make your healthcare different for you. You're going to get the government-offered brand, and that's all that's available. And it's a very um, horrible situation. Now... It's not only that you have this one-size-fits-all, but people are fallible. They make mistakes. And that, to me, is the most important thing. It doesn't matter how smart anybody is. And it doesn't matter how educated they are. It doesn't matter how many degrees they have. It doesn't matter what their academic pedigree is. People make mistakes. And when people make these mistakes, you need to have the ability to change course, especially when these mistakes have to do with your health care, and we all make them. I believe I'm a very good doctor. I actually believe I'm better than average doctor. I think I'm a great doctor. Now, probably not everybody feels that way about me, but I do feel like I'm a pretty good doctor. Now, having said that, I have made mistakes in my life, and I feel like, and I will make more in the future, uh, but I feel like I do a pretty good job of trying to learn from my mistakes and take precautions to make sure that these mistakes never happen again. And I want to share with you some experiences that I've had to kind of give you a concept of why it is so important for you to maintain control of your own health care. Now, the first thing we talked about was interest. I just gave you an example of these people were not necessarily dumb. The person running my practice or the accountant that was supposed to be watching him, they just weren't really motivated to guard my interests the way I wanted to guard my interests. Um, the next kind of level of, of problem is just flat-out mistakes, and we're all fallible. Now, you want to talk about fallibility. Let's just kind of put it in perspective. I was watching President Biden's press conference yesterday, and the reporter, James Rosen, pointed out a recent study or a recent poll that was taken where 49% of the country believes that President Biden is cognitively impaired. And James Rosen, in a very, I thought the way he worded the question was as respectful as possible, but President Biden is the leader of the free world. And it is a reasonable question to ask the leader of a free world why half the country believes you're cognitively impaired. And President Biden's response to, when, when James Rosen asked him why it may be, what are, what are your thoughts on why half the country believes you're cognitively impaired? His response was, I have no idea. Now, I remember thinking to myself, is that really the entity that you want to cede your health care to? You have a situation where the President of the United States is in, is a poll is taken about him, and half the people believe he's cognitively impaired. And his response to that is, is I have no idea. I mean, it's a flippant response. He's the leader of the free world. He has the nuclear football. He's makes decisions that affect literally every person on planet Earth. And half the people think he's cognitively impaired, and his flippant response to the question about it is, well, I have no idea. I, I'm stunned that anybody would want to be able to cede that kind of power over their life to another person without having their own control. And uh, medicine is one of those things where you're going to get different opinions. There isn't a one-size-fits-all answer to most things. And I know we're living in an age where you're being told that the science is settled and that debate is over and it's time to move on, but that is simply not science. Science is always debatable. Science is always, science is always complicated, and there are always going to be differing opinions, and you need to always have control over your own healthcare decisions so that you can, you can have control over your own healthcare. Now, one of the things I like to share that illustrates this, I brought it up on 
our last show is Joseph Lister. He lived from 1827 to 1912, and he is acknowledged as the father of antiseptic surgery. He's the uh, physician who introduced the concept of antiseptic process, and dramatically his his procedures, his policies dramatically decreased deaths from childbirth and surgery, and he changed the way the medical industry looked at sanitation and proper hygiene. Now, his story is a very prescient one, and it's very emblematic of why it is so important to preserve, promote, and defend scientific debate and open scientific opinion. And I'm going to get into that a little bit more when we get back from this break. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on the Doctor's Lounge. I'm talking to you on America's Web Radio. We'll be right back. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. And today we are discussing lessons learned about the doctor-patient relationship. Let's not forget them. I've been talking to you about why it is so important that you maintain control of your own healthcare decisions the we talked early on in the show that that from my standpoint i always really believed it was about quality because it never even entered my mind about the moral question about about our health care and then i came across an essay that uh discussed why so many nazi uh so many doctors joined the nazi party and i feel that uh that is sort of dovetails into all the things that we've been talking about, about why it's so important that you maintain control over your own health care. And while it might be a little bit hyperbolic to say we're sliding back into a, a Holocaust situation, I do think that we should be uh, looking at some of the par- parallels to make sure we don't go in that direction ever. The other thing is, in order to ensure that we never have a slide like that again, uh, we need to preserve the traditional doctor-patient relationship where a doctor's phys- fidelity is to the patient. Now, we're living in a world where I have to be very careful about offering my opinions here. I know that I get in trouble for making statements of fact and that I have to present it in just a way to make sure that people who hate me, who hate my speech, who want to suppress my speech, uh, have the most limited avenue of attack against me. Now, that in and of itself is very sad. The idea that people who are offering scientific opinions are being censored and being canceled and being threatened 
uh, medical licenses are not only being threatened to be taken away, they're actually being taken away. And this is a very, very dangerous time. People need to wake up and need to defend the ability of doctors and scientists out there to share their opinions. And I just kind of want to give you a little bit of a history lesson to kind of understand just how important this is. Now, we were talking about Joseph Lister, who is regarded as the father of the antiseptic process in surgery. His procedures implemented radically decreased the death rate from childbirth and surgery and changed the way medicine practiced. Now, as expected, it took a long time for other people in the medical field to accept Lister's findings. A lot of them were incredulous at the thought that an or- that organisms too small to be seen were causing all the post-operation deaths. Some found it tiring to have to go through the sterilization process before performing an operation. And although some of them tried Lister's methods, the majority of them did it incorrectly and their efforts proved to be useless. He was now a professor of clinical surgery in Edinburgh, and he continued to modify his system to achieve better results despite the negative feedback. It took 12 long years before Lister's system gained widespread acceptance. Those who emulated Lister's example in Munich gained astounding success, with the death rate caused by infection after surgery dropping from 80% to almost zero. The English doctors were among the last to accept the brilliance of Lister's methods, only winning them over when he was appointed as professor of surgery at London's King College Hospital in 1877. By 1879, his findings had gained widespread acceptance around the globe. Now, listen, folks, you look back on this and the idea of antiseptic medicine was resisted by the establishment. And it seems ludicrous that anybody would oppose Lister's ideas, concepts and his thinking today. But you have to understand the way the human mind thinks. And I've talked about this on this show. I have my way of doing things. For example, the way I approach a hip replacement or the way I approach a knee replacement, I've done it over and over and over again. And I'm very comfortable with my procedure. You get somebody who comes along and says, hey, there's a whole new way of doing it that's a lot better. There is a normal resistance to not want to do that. It's like, man, now i got to learn a whole new way of doing things. It's going to set me back in terms of my level of expertise, and there's going to be resistance to it. The only way we move forward is when we allow all speech to be heard, and we allow all ideas to be heard, and we test these theories, and we don't do things that limit free speech. We don't cancel people. This, in the end, has a negative impact on us, and we've seen it over and over again throughout history. And the story of... Lister is just such an obvious one. It's such an elegant one to explain a lot of the things that are going on now. Now, when I was in high school, I graduated from high school in 1983. So in 1983, we were about to come up on 1984, which is the title of George Orwell's famous book called 1984 about the dystopian future. And in that book, he discussed people like the thought police and memory holding information and things of that nature. It was very dystopian. People were not allowed independent thought. The government told them what to think. They changed language. They changed the definition of meanings. There was lots of propaganda in the book about wars going on to try and get people fearful and to fall in line. And I can remember reading this book in 1983, and my friends and I would sit around the senior bench And we would talk about this book and the fact that there's no way any of this stuff could happen. It is ridiculous to think that anything in this book could possibly be true. And now here it is in my lifetime. It's happening exactly as George Orwell wrote it in his in his famous book, 1984. If you have not read the book or listened to it on books on tape, I suggest that you get it immediately and listen to it or read it or both so that you can understand exactly what's happening now. Now, when we talk about George Orwell's 1984, one of the things we've noticed, and it's happened to me on this show, 
is that I've tried to bring up information I know about certain medical issues of the day. And when people don't like what I'm saying, I'm attacked and threatened and censored. Now, Joe Rogan, who is the number one podcaster on planet Earth, and uh, I happen to love Joe Rogan first because I'm a big MMA fan, and so I've been listening to him for a long time. Uh, But Joe Rogan came down with COVID and uh, underwent some treatment and got better in 36 hours. And he took his personal experience and he shared it with the world on his podcast. And now recently on Spotify, there's a list of 270 doctors who wrote a letter complaining about Joe Rogan uh, and want his uh, podcast to be taken down because they don't like what he's saying. And it's 270 doctors is the way it's presented. But as you look into it, only 87 of the 270 doctors I use in quotes were actual medical doctors. The vast majority of them uh, or, uh, uh, yeah, the majority of them uh, were, you know, podcasters, Ph.D. students, veterinarians, so not doctors. So you have a society where they're trying to use this idea of people with credentials as a lever, as a leverage, as a cudgel to stamp out other other voices. Now, I just talked to you about the fact that my accountant let me down, my CEO of my first practice let me down, doctors can let you down because they make mistakes, and I've got some more examples of that. You got Lister decreasing the death rate from 80% to almost zero. I mean, do you understand how monumental of a change that was? And it was resisted by the doctors of his time that he was spreading misinformation. Now you got Joe Rogan, who's basically sharing treatment that's pretty common. We know because we know a lot of members of Congress receive very similar treatment. And we're trying to shut him down and we're trying to use we're trying to use people with credentials and with academic pedigree to justify stamping out his free speech. And I'm here to tell you this is absolutely wrongheaded thinking. It's going to lead to horrible quality medicine. It already has and is is getting worse and worse yet if we don't get control of our traditional doctor patient relationship we risk sliding further into into horrible conditions like the holocaust the idea that the holocaust could never happen again is ridiculous if we don't guard against the things that protected free speech that protected the doctor patient relationship anything is possible And we need to pay attention to how things have played out. Now, you want to talk about the poor quality of health care and the way changing the fidelity of the doctor uh, from the doctor to the patient to the doctor to the employee, the way we disincentivize uh, people, we lead to poor quality health care. And... I shared with you guys last time, I have a patient who reached out to me from Colorado. I've never met them, but they got my name through common people. And he was told that I'm a good guy, I'm a good doctor, smart person, and that that I might be able to help him. So this person reached out to me and told me he was given a diagnosis of ALS. For those of you who don't know what ALS is, it's amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. It is probably one of the most horrible ways that people can go. Um, He's 37 years old, this particular patient, in the prime of his life with a family and kids, and was given this diagnosis. And when he called me, I said, well, what, what are you, what's your data? Let me see your, your CT scans. He's got issues with his neck that he was hoping could explain his symptoms. And he had an EMG, which is nerve conduction test, to evaluate him and was told he had ALS. And I said, well, what did your doctor say? And his response was, well, my doctor won't call me back. And I was like, what? And I go, well, what about your other doctor? No, he won't call me back either. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, what kind of... What kind of situation do we have where a patient is just given a diagnosis of ALS and they can't get their questions answered? It's so bad 
that this patient has to reach out from Colorado to Georgia to get a doctor. ALS is not even in my area of medicine. And I have to be the one to solve this problem. Now, he sent me his data. And on first examination of his spinal images, I was able to confirm that um, a lot of his symptoms could be coming from his neck that he was describing to me over the phone. Of course, it's not an in-person physical exam, but I was just trying to gather information. And in the end, I'm thinking to myself, well, if somebody gave him a diagnosis of ALS, it probably is. And I was thinking that it's just our deteriorating medical system has just created this situation where the doctor doesn't really want to face a patient and have to have this hard discussion about ALS. And because we have this increasingly bureaucratic medical system, it's relatively easy for doctors to hide from their patients and avoid these difficult conversations. And this is what was going on in my mind, that this patient, you know, that I can't believe they're going to have made a, a, a an inaccurate diagnosis. I thought they're just avoiding the patients so they don't have to have the tough conversation. And I'm sitting here thinking, now I'm going to have to have this tough conversation. So I have this guy send me his stuff, and I start looking into it. And I'm thinking, all right, based on what the patient told me about his physical findings, it seems like the MRI of his neck would explain some of this stuff. So I called him, and I started asking more questions. Are you having difficulty swallowing? And some other things that are more uh, related to Lou Gehrig's disease. He said no. So he sent me the EMGs and the nerve conductions. And when I looked at it, I thought, I don't really see anything here that warrants um, a diagnosis of Lou Gehrig's disease. And I also noted there was an inaccurate EMG, or not an inaccurate, but it was an incomplete one. It, wasn't, it didn't have enough uh, parameters to be able to make an in-depth diagnosis. And so because... ALS is not in my wheelhouse. I had to reach out to some trusted neurologist friends of mine to go over this information. And what I've gathered so far was the test is not accurate enough to even make a diagnosis of ALS. That with the information that we do have, it doesn't look like the diagnosis is Lou Gehrig's disease. And it looks like, in fact, maybe the neck is the thing that is causing the the person to to experience the symptoms that they're having. Now, this really stuns me. So now we're living in a world where a patient can't go to a doctor in the United States of America in 2022, can't go get a workup and have a doctor sit down and go through this information and this patient given a serious diagnosis like ALS, not have the ability to go and seek out a second opinion and has to reach out to a doctor in another state. Then go on to find out that the diagnosis, this death sentence, this horrible diagnosis given, looks to me so far to be an inaccurate diagnosis. Folks, we are moving in the wrong direction. This one-size-fits-all, top-down, government-run healthcare system is a problem. Now, I'm going to give you another example of how this socialized medicine system dovetails into poor medicine. And one of the issues is testing. So when, when I'm a doctor and I have a patient, that patient comes to see me, I give my my opinions, all of my all of the way I care for that patient is about that patient. Everything I do is about the well-being of that patient, or at least it should be. Now, when I run tests, my goal is not to run as many tests as possible so I can jack up the bill. My goal is to give that person accurate information so that they can make decisions about how to proceed with their health care. Now, when the government gets involved, they start dictating reimbursement. So... I'm no longer able to charge a reasonable price for the visit. And so I have to find ways to make up the cost of that visit using the tools that the government gives me. And one of the things is, you know, the insurance companies, which I'm always trying to explain to you, you guys may say, well, insurance company, that's free medicine. No, the insurance companies are so regulated by the government that they are quasi government run healthcare. So they control the way we doctors practice medicine because it is very difficult for a doctor to run a practice without being tied to the insurance companies. So 
The insurance companies tell you what you can charge for a visit. They they reimburse you what they decide, which has always gone down, down, and down. And it's gotten to the point where doctors can't get reimbursed enough from the insurance companies to keep their doors open, which is why they've all had to shut their doors and go become employed by the hospitals in the first place. Now, the they also will tell you where you can and can't make your money. And so what happens is you get doctors over time that are influenced to, I can't charge enough money for the clinic visit, so I'm going to make my money up by running these tests. And then as running these tests becomes um, more controlled by the government, you get uh, you get salespeople that come in to try to sell you these tests that become less and less accurate. And I know this is complicated, but let me give you an example. As a practicing physician, orthopedic surgeon for 30 years, I can inject joints and I'm good at it. I can, you know, get into your shoulder. I can get into your finger, your hip, your ankle. I can use a needle. I can take medicine and I can put it in there. Now, there's some research out there to suggest that I would be more accurate by using an ultrasound machine. And that's probably true, but it's minuscule. And I know this because I've been practicing for a long time. I don't have a lot of problems with my patients saying, hey, you messed up my care by missing my joint. That's not an issue for me. But I had somebody come in that sold me an ultrasound machine, and they told me that if I use the ultrasound machine to do this injection, that I can get reimbursed three times what I would have gotten paid if I didn't use the machine. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that seems ridiculous. You're going to pay me three times to do something with your machine that I could have done without it. And not only that, I still was not convinced to buy the machine, but they also said that you get a rebate where the cost of the machine is is you know half price or whatever it was. And who do you think's picking up the tab for that second half of the cost of that machine? The taxpayer is. So basically that company goes to the government, is able to influence the politicians and the bureaucrats and the people like that who control reimbursement, get them to reimburse doctors at a greater level to use this machine. And so if that's not enough to convince a doctor to do it, they also give us a rebate where the government is paying for half that machine. And so now I have this ultrasound machine. You have to stay with me on this. So now... I'm able to use this ultrasound machine to do my injections, which allows me to get reimbursed three times what I would have gotten if I don't use the ultrasound machine. So they're incentivizing me to do something that I don't believe is necessarily clinically necessary for me to deliver the same quality health care. They're just putting me in a situation where I can get paid more money to do it, so I do do it. Now listen... In the end, they, they re, the insurance companies reimburse so little money that you, you, you get doctors over time that are basically chasing a dollar here and a dollar there just to try and keep their doors open. And largely, most of them have failed, which is why the vast majority of them have, have uh, become employed because they couldn't stay in business uh, with the reimbursement that they were getting. And so what happens is you're influencing the way a doctor practices because my fidelity is being controlled by a third party, the government, and is not directly related to the patient. And we talked about this uh, in other ways. When my mother, I told you guys a couple weeks back or a couple months ago, my mom fell down the stairs, she broke her ankle, she went to the hospital, and I told my brother, listen, make sure they get an x-ray and I need these certain things. And my brother said, man, they ran all these tests and she was there for hours and it was like looking at the ankle was almost an afterthought. And the reason is because the emergency room has been conditioned to look at the patient as a Medicare patient and to run through all of the things that Medicare will pay. Medicare will pay for testing my mother for placement in a nursing home. Even though we have no intention of putting her in a nursing home, they still ran the test and charged the system that cost. You see what I'm saying? So now you've got people that come in and they start to sell you tools. So they come into your office and they say, hey, you can run um, EMGs, nerve conduction studies, and we're going to sell you this machine. Now, one of the things about accurate nerve conduction studies is they require the sticking of a needle into the muscles of your hand, and people don't like it. So they will stick. So I, you know, I don't want to run that test. I don't need it in a lot of circumstances. So when I do need it, 
I have to need that test enough to warrant sticking those needles into the muscles where I have to tell the patient, listen, it's going to be uncomfortable, but it's necessary. And then when it's not necessary, I find a way not to do that because patients really hate it. Now, over time, companies came out with these pads that you put on the muscle. So instead of sticking a needle into the muscle, you put these pads on the muscle. But those tests are notoriously inaccurate and doctors know it. But what happens is the patient comes in, you put the pads on, you do these inaccurate tests. The doctor knows they're inaccurate. Uh, They then get reimbursed for doing the test. And we've just added money to the overall cost of caring for a patient that did absolutely nothing to help that patient. And this is how the system has been damaged over time. And you're seeing the real world problem here with a guy who just got a diagnosis of Lou Gehrig's disease because of a system that promotes the lackadaisical usage of these uh, pieces of equipment, prevents this person from getting other opinions so that they can come to a diagnosis. And we're in a situation where we've got a real problem. This is not small. A guy gets a diagnosis of Lou Gehrig's disease based on this. It is entirely predictable. It is entirely expected when you when you damage the doctor-patient relationship and you make it so that my fidelity as a physician is not to you and only to you, but to other forces. And you might say to yourself, like, well, you know, finances, you know, money is going to be an influence there. I always talk about the fact this bottle of water, you come when 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 the government pays for this bottle of water, they're charging you 50 bucks or 100 bucks, whatever it is. They charge you something ridiculous for this water. I offer you this water. If I were to say it's 100 bucks, you'd be like, I don't want that water no matter how thirsty I am. But if I tell you it's free, you're like, sure, I'll take it. You might not even want the water. You just think it's free. You might take a single sip. How many of us have done this? You take a single sip, and you know what? I really didn't want that water, and you leave it, and it's a waste. I did not pay for that water bottle 100 bucks right when I got it, but I am paying for it. It's buried in the deductibles and in the premiums that are going through the roof, and you are paying it. You just don't realize it. That is the problem with our healthcare. We talked about my patient that died of brain cancer. He came to me with a shoulder injury. He was having some problems with the nerves in his hand. In the back of my mind, I thought it could be a brain tumor. I knew it probably wasn't because the chances of that are so minute. Uh, I felt his issue was coming from his shoulder, but to be safe, I sent him to a neurologist with the idea, the, the, the unwritten whole point of that referral was I'm just asking if he has a brain tumor. And that that neurologist sent him back saying, nope, he doesn't have a brain tumor. He has what you think he has going on with the shoulder. And as it turned out, he did have a brain tumor. Now, do I think that neurologist was not intellectually capable of making the diagnosis? No, he absolutely was, or she. I have no idea who it was. That person was absolutely capable of making the diagnosis. The reason they didn't is because they got lazy, because of the perverse incentives that are set up that diminish the doctor-patient relationship. Now, even the best people in the world, and I'm not throwing myself into the category of best people in the world, but I do, I, I, I try to be empathetic. I care about my patients. I do believe that. But you have to understand that the doctor-patient relationship is tenuous. And I'm just going to give you some examples to get you to understand the mindset of the human being. And it's not good or bad. It's just one of those things that just is. And I'm going to give you an example. There was a, when I was working at the trauma center at the University of Miami, uh, you would see horrible things, people dying and, and really, really difficult things. And it was tough. And it, you know, I never got to the point where, you know, I went to pieces every time something happened. But, you know, if you were like going to pieces every time somebody died, you know, you wouldn't last very long in an environment like that because it happened all the time. It was the biggest or busiest trauma center in the world at the time, probably still is. Um, and so you get kind of cavalier. I mean, sometimes you're in there and you don't see the face. You know, my job as an orthopedic surgeon, I'm dealing with the broken limbs and maybe the patient, you know, didn't make it. They died. And, you know, you move on. And I didn't really think too much about it, not because... I'm a bad person necessarily, but 
but it's just the way human beings are. And I remember one time in particular, there was an old lady. It was on a weekend. She got hit by a car. She died. We went in, and I did not think anything about it. I was totally fine. I, it did not affect me because I was so busy doing my job. Then I got in the elevator and her family got on. And over the course of this elevator ride, they were talking about their mother, their grandmother, and what she meant and that she was going to get cards for the kids for their birthday and all this stuff. And in this short little elevator ride, it really brought this person as a person to me. And I broke down into tears. I left that elevator and I bawled my eyes out. And I just remember thinking how that relationship affected my my feelings towards this person in one instant I had no feeling and then in another instance I did and it was all about the relationship between the doctor and patient now I'm going to get more into this uh, how why so many uh, doctors became Nazis because I think it's really important in understanding the doctor patient relationship I hope this opened your guys your eyes a little bit about the importance of the doctor patient relationship I'm Dr. Scott Barber and you're listening to me on America's web radio This is the Doctor's Lounge, and I'll catch you guys next time. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.